you're a regular here at River Rock, you already know this, that our lead pastor, Charlie, is gone on vacation. My name's Stephen. If you don't know, I'm the associate pastor here, and it's my privilege to fill in for him whenever he is gone. Um, he's such an awesome guy, and he doesn't get enough time off. He works a lot of hours, and so I'm really glad that our pastor has the opportunity uh, to go and take some time off on vacation. We're going to be talking to believers this morning. If you're an atheist or you're an agnostic this morning, I'm really glad that you're here and you're going to love this service because you get like to be totally off the hook this morning. I'm going to be talking directly to believers, to church members, to churchgoers this morning. So as the book of Malachi kind of uh, beats us up this morning, if you're not a believer, then you get to just watch the rest of us get uh, beat over the head by the book of Malachi. All right, uh, we started last week. The book of Malachi is, of course, the prophet Malachi, and he's coming back to God's people. And if you notice what prophets do, normally prophets don't come and give some new revelation of things to come, although sometimes they did that. But usually when prophets were on the scene, it's because God's people, okay, the ship of God's people is kind of drifted off course, and it's headed towards rocky shores And the prophet comes in and he says, look, God wants you to right the ship. You're going the wrong direction. And and so that's what the whole book of Malachi is really doing. It's him trying to talk to God's people and right the ship and get them going back in the right direction. And so as I was preparing the message this week and looking at the book of Malachi last week and the book of Malachi this week, this is a tough book. It's a tough book to read because it starts to challenge you and you start to look at it and go, Man, this applies to my life right now, too. And so it's really convicting, or at least it was for me this week. And so look, I was super convicted this week, and I'm just going to pass on to you that which was given to me this week. And so I hope that you leave here with that same type of conviction in your heart as well. Open up to the book of Malachi, if you haven't guessed already. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Beginning in verse 6, it says this. A son honors his father... And a servant is master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says Yahweh of hosts to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, well, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. You ask, well, how have we defiled you? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or a sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor, asks the Lord of hosts? And now ask for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us since this has come from your hands? And will he show any of you favor? Asked the Lord of hosts, I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will accept no offering from your hands. For my name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense And pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance, and you scorn it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals and you bring this as an offering, 
Am I to accept that from your hands? Asks the Lord. The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So if you don't know what's going on here, if you're unfamiliar with kind of Mosaic law and how this all worked out, God had provided a strict guideline for how they were to sacrifice offerings to him laid out in the book of Leviticus, specifically chapter 22, if you want to go back and look at that today. I'm not going to go into it in great detail right now. But they're giving God their mangy leftovers. And why do you think they wanted to do that? Somebody venture a guess. Why would they give God mangy, stolen, lame, blind animals from their flock for sacrifice instead of giving God their very best, un, what the Bible says should have been unblemished lambs? Why would they do that? Somebody want to take a guess? Okay. You? It didn't cost him anything. Very good. This was about profit. This was about, well, we could give God our best, but over here we got this blind thing and we're never going to get anything for, from it and we certainly don't want it breeding because maybe it'll produce more blind. So let's take this in and give it to the priests and, and maybe they'll accept it. And the problem was the priests were accepting it. Okay, so you got God's people and the priests both going against what God's law has said. This is not bringing me your best. You see, to follow God's law required a sacrifice and it required them to trust God. You know, when you give God your best, you're trusting him that he's going he's gonna to still sustain you and take care of you when, when you give him your first and your best fruits, right? But they were too busy making the worship sacrifice all about themselves, what benefited them. It seems God's people have a history of amnesia. Am I the only one who thinks this about the Israelites? You know, like if you read the Old Testament and you think about the Israelites and their, and their behavior, you know, it's not long after God, like, basically lays waste to the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. You know, he takes them through the Red Sea, swallows up the army in the ocean. They're on the other side, and it's not long before they're whining and complaining, and they're saying, oh, that we were back in Egypt where the pots were full of meat. God's brought us out here to starve us. And I read that sometimes, and I go, how are you the same? Don't you remember seeing what... Have you forgotten who God is? Do you ever think that about them? I do. You see, God calls for their best, and instead they offer him stolen, lame, blind, mangy animals. These sacrifices are both literally and figuratively lame. It's as if God's looking at this and he's saying, you've got to be kidding me. I'm pretty sure if you look at the original Greek language here, God says, oh, no, you didn't. You must have lost your mind. Have you forgotten who you're talking to? You know, in my house with my children, if they step out of line on something and it's been a pretty decent day, I'll look at them with love and grace and I'll say, now, Samuel or Galilee or Jonathan, I asked you to do this. Instead of doing this, you chose to do this. Now, do you want blessing or do, or do you want discipline? And then I get like right down right here. You know what I'm saying? Okay, daddy. And they'll go do what they've been told sometimes. 
But if it's been a bad day and I say, hey, make sure that you do this or make sure that you don't do that. And then I listen and they're still doing that thing I told them not to and I let it slide. And then about five minutes later, I, I let it slide and they're still doing it. And then they do it again. And then the next thing they hear is just my chair go and like scoot out from where I'm sitting. And I look their direction and I just say this word, okay. Okay. And they know what that means. That means like they're doing that butt sucked in run like this when they're trying to get away from, you know, from dad. That's what God's doing here. He's saying, what are you? No, you have lost your mind. Who are you talking to to bring this before me like this? But let's cut them some slack here. You know, the Israelites, almost in a mocking manner, the audacity is plain, right? It just leaps off the page when they say in verse 6 and 7, you know, how have we done this? How have we defiled your altar? Right? But let's give them some slack, and let's try to read it and ask that question of ourselves honestly. And here's what I've done. This morning, if we were to ask ourselves, have we... Have we defiled God's altar? Have we brought lame sacrifices to the Lord? Has our worship been about us instead of about him? And let's, let's cut ourselves a lot of slack. I like to do that for myself. I don't know if you like to do that. I like to cut myself a lot of slack. So let's just limit it to one day of the week where God's microscope can kind of zoom in and say, what's your worship for me like? And let's just limit it to, I don't know, the one day a week that we're supposed to be focused on really coming together and worshiping God. Sundays. That's all we'll talk about. Let's ask ourselves these questions. Do we consistently schedule other things over the priority of corporate worship and offer God kind of the leftovers of our schedules? Do we do that? When we are not entertained, have we ever said, you know, I just wasn't feeling the spirit move today. Really wasn't my favorite song. Worship leader's guitar sounded a little bit weird. The air conditioning isn't working. When we dislike a Sunday message, do we disregard and devalue its truth? Listen, whoever told us it was acceptable to disregard and disobey simply because we disagree? Whoever told us that, that was okay. God's word says X, and we think, I don't want to do that, I want to do Y, so I'm just not going to do that. Do any of us like to construct our own little version of Jesus? I like this about Jesus, I like this about Jesus, I like this about Jesus, but this other stuff is really challenging and hard. I don't like that, so this is my Jesus. We ever do that? When it's inconvenient to serve, do we step forward or do we quit? When we don't feel like praising God, do we still lift our voice in song and offer him a sacrifice of praise, the book of Hebrews says, that is due his name? Or do we just sit back quietly and hide behind our cup of coffee? Listen, does the business of worship consume us? Or have we just become consumers? Does the business of worship consume us? Or have we just become consumers? This should really break our hearts. We should hear Malachi speaking to us today. 
and it should break our hearts because God has called us to selfless sacrifice and instead we offer selfish sacrilege. We've brought contemptible worship before the Lord. Well, this won't cost me anything. I'll offer this. Does Malachi's message apply to us today? What do you think? Modern worship is filled with this sad irony. That which is supposed to be primarily all about God, which is worship. In our day and age, we have turned almost entirely into an act that is about me. What makes me happy? What makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside? What gives me goosebumps? What music do I like? What type of preacher do I like? Me, me, me. I, I, I. And in so doing that, we worship a God called me. And me is a very little God. And when you show the world a very little God, you should not blame them when they are not interested in being a part of a body that worships that kind of a God. We need to show them a picture of a great big God. That's what the world needs. We don't need to be just entertained by great music and eloquent speakers. Where does this come from? Where does this type of worship come from? I think it primarily comes from a small view of God. Half-hearted worship comes from a small view of God. I want you all to look at this Spurgeon quote. Anybody know who Spurgeon was? Raise your hand if, if you know Spurgeon. His nickname was the Prince of Preachers. If you can't read this, I'll read it for you. It says, The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing that hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. Providing amusement for the people is nowhere spoken of in the scriptures as a function of the church. The need is biblical doctrine so understood and felt that it sets men afire. Now what he's talking about with doctrine here is not just some kind of dogmatic rules and regulations set down by a particular religious sect. What he's talking about is the truths about who God is and his love for us. And when people really begin to get a clear picture of who God is, who he is, and who we are in comparison, and the fact that he loved us enough to die for us, nobody has to convince you to worship that God. Listen, a pastor could stand up here all day and tell you what you need to do. Hey, you need to come bring acceptable offerings of praise. You need to come lift your voice. You need to show up on time for church. You know, you need to make Sunday morning a priority. You know, you need, you need, you need. And all those would be correct. But I don't want to do that. Malachi's already given us a spanking this morning. Okay? What I want to do is show you a bigger picture of God. My goal would be that you would leave here today and that you'd remember his greatness and his majesty and his glory and that that would be what would fuel your worship for your rest of your week. If you could just get a glimpse of who God is. That's what we need. You see, when God grows in your eyes, so does your worship.
When God gets bigger in your eyes, your worship for him becomes more selfless. It becomes more commonplace. You begin to move from the default setting of me, 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 I, 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 to him, 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 look, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's what happens. When you get a fresh perspective of who God is, no one will have to convince you of his worth. That's where the word worship comes from. Worship is roughly defined as this weird old English word that means worth-ship. So this idea of understanding the worth of God is directly tied to how you'll worship him. When you really understand God's worth in all of its grandeur, worship will be an automatic thing that happens because of it. When people see God historically, you know what they do? They turn it into their best impersonation of a puddle on the ground. They just melt before him. When people see God in all of his brilliance, it changes Saul's into Paul's. Just like that. If you look back at this whole passage here, let your eyes go over it. Did anybody notice this phrase? If you're reading from the Holman Christian like we have up on the screen, that is, uh, he's called the Lord of hosts. Anybody notice that phraseology, the Lord of hosts? If you're reading from NIV, he's called the Lord Almighty. Okay, the Lord of hosts is kind of a weird phrase. And let me just explain it to you real briefly. What it basically means is like a military supreme commander. It carries with it this weightiness of powerful majesty, respect, and reverence, and fear. That's what the Lord of hosts is. It's the Lord of angel armies. Okay? It carries with it that type of thing. And, you know, God has primarily revealed himself to us in grace through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus first came to us as a lamb. So we know him by his grace and his patience with us. And so that's how we primarily identify with him. And so it's easy to get a little too comfortable with God. It's easy to kind of lose some respect and reverence and awe of who God is because of that. He is the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of Judah. He's the Lion of Judah. Listen, lions are inherently majestic, aren't they? Look at him. Isn't he amazing? But they're also inherently dangerous. If you were to be sitting 10 or 12 feet away from this guy right here, something would start to feel different inside your guts a little bit. Have you ever been to the zoo? My favorite animals at the zoo, guys. I know I'm a grown man. I still eat peanut butter, jelly sandwiches, and goldfish crackers. I can't help it. But listen, I like going to the zoo because... I love big cats. They're my favorite attraction at the zoo. I love seeing the big cats. There's something about them. And some zoos, you get to go down like right next to the wall and they got this thick plexiglass and you can be sitting literally three feet away from a 600-pound lion. And sometimes, just sometimes, you can pretend like the glass isn't there and he can fix his gaze upon you. And those big golden eyes look at you and sharpen and they begin to peer almost into your soul. 
Do you feel something with that? I guarantee you, if that was the real deal, and he was peering into you, go to that close-up of his eye. (laughs) And you saw those pupils go... And you suddenly feel like one of those little toys you can buy at the grocery store, like with a bell for your house cat, you know? He's the Lion of Judah. Jesus is the, not only the Lamb of God, he's the Lion of Judah. He's not only meek and gentle and graceful, but he's also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the beginning and the end. He's the eternal, mysterious, triune God. The mountains melt like wax before our God. This is the king we worship. This is the king who with but a word from his mouth, he can wipe out vast armies with sea. He can swallow them with the earth. He commands the winds and the waves. Our God is a lion as well as a lamb. And if we lose the respect that is due his name, it's easy to slip into apathy in our worship and kind of forget who it is that we worship. Let us never forget that the same God which can rain down blessings can pummel with pestilence and plague. Our God is mighty. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 says, Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Better to draw near in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do. For they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. You see what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying to you here? Don't forget who God is. Don't get too comfortable with God. He is mighty. He's the Lord of hosts. I remember when I was young, about 11 or 12 years old, dad took us across country on a road trip to see the Grand Canyon. I'd always wanted to see it. And I mean, for months leading up to it, I was reading about facts about the Grand Canyon and stuff. There's places you can stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon and look down over one mile. I remember looking at picture after picture after picture on the internet. Well, not on the internet, because, you know, back then there wasn't an internet, but... uh, in, in, in books and stuff, and I go to the library. I was so excited, and I thought that when I got there, I'd know what it felt like to be at the Grand Canyon. But I remember stepping to the edge. To this day, I remember seeing it for the first time, and I remember how quiet it was. People standing all around, and nobody's talking. What you heard was like, oh, oh man, wow. It's like it took your breath away. The Lord of hosts is not just this connotation of a military commander. It also speaks in the Bible right from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them. So when God is the Lord of hosts, and the heavens and the earth are, are the hosts, if God's the Lord of all the hosts, then that means God created every bit of it, and he's the Lord Almighty, supreme commander of all of it. And so the Grand Canyon is just this one little feature on the face of a little planet. I want to show you guys something. I want to give you a picture of how little you and I are. Look at this picture of of our solar system. 
I'm sorry, our galaxy. This is the Milky Way. Inside the little yellow circle there, can everybody see? That's every star that you could possibly see in the night sky, in that little tiny circle. And that's just in one little galaxy. There's millions of galaxies, and scientists don't even know how many there are. The scientists estimate roughly, and this is on the back of your bulletin if you want to look at it, but the scientists estimate roughly that there are 10 to the 24th power stars in the known universe. In the known universe. And they say that that's a very conservative estimate, okay? You know what that is? That's a one with 24 zeros after it. I had to look up how to say it because I had no clue. Somebody look this up and see if Google's right, but I read one septillion is the word. That's for free. You guys get that. For when you're on Jeopardy or something. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. What's it say? Let's put it up there. Look up and see who created these. He's talking about the stars. He brings out the starry hosts by number and he calls them all by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Now look at Psalm 147, verse 4 and 5. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. One septillion stars. And he didn't even get his hands dirty making them. He spoke it, and it was. He knows every one of them by name. Bob. Cindy. V.Y. Canis Majoris. And this little one over by this planet called Sun. Our God is so big, you guys. And we're so little. Look at this image. If you were to take a basketball and say that that was roughly the size of our sun, this little tiny blue dot right here would be us on planet Earth. Not, not us, like the planet Earth would be that. It's roughly 2.2 millimeters in diameter. It's like a BB, planet Earth, compared to a basketball for our sun. Now look at this. You can't even see it. That's the sun... Here, you can't even see it in this image. This is V.Y. Canis Majoris, the largest known star that scientists can look at. To give you an idea of how big this star is, if you were to board the most advanced passenger uh, airliner in the world and travel around its circumference, it would take you 1,100 years to fly around that star, V.Y. Canis Majoris. And God said, V.Y. Canis Majoris. And there it was. If you get an idea this morning of how big God is, I won't have to tell you to put him first. I won't have to tell you to bring him your best and not bring him your leftovers. You'll fall before him in adoration. Before you even walk in this door over here to come into the sanctuary for worship, you will have already thought to yourself, I come before the Lord through Jesus. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And I come before him through Jesus. And you'll fall on your knees and worship him. 
You cannot begin to describe who the Lord of hosts is. Very few have seen him, and they tried. If you look at the prophet Ezekiel, and you look at Isaiah, what they say, we don't have time to go there this morning, but listen to some, some of the things they say trying to describe him. They said, like, from his upper half, I mean, you get the feeling like they're struggling. They're struggling to explain who he is. They say, like, from his upper half, he's, he looks like fire. And then he looks like kind of molten metal. And then his lower half, he, he kind of looks like fire. He looks like a rainbow bursting forth from storm clouds. They just can't get over what he looks like. And one of them, Isaiah says, woe is me for, and this is the New Stephen translation. He says, woe is me for I'm a dead man. He's so big and so bright and so majestic and so incredible. And me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm going to die just from being in front of him. That's our king. That's our king. One last story, and I'll let you guys get out of here. I used to lead worship in San Antonio at a pretty large church there. The name of the church is Oak Hills. I don't know if anybody's heard of it. Uh, but at Oak Hills, I don't know. There's thousands of people in there, but uh, there was a man who lived close by in San Antonio. And... Uh, I looked out one morning, I'm standing there on the edge, and there's, you know, probably about 3,000 people there, and sitting on the front row is this little-known country and western singer by the name of George Strait. Anybody know what George Strait's nickname is among country fans? King George. George Strait's arguably the finest songwriter, country music, western singer of our generation, even my dad's generation. So imagine what I felt like. I'm standing there about to sing. I'm going to sing and play the guitar in front of King George. Right? And for a few moments, fear crept over me. I was like, I'm not singing in front of George Strait, man. Then I felt the voice of God speak to me. He's not your king. You get to sing for me today, son. I'm your king. And that was all it took. I get to sing for Jesus. King of kings, Lord of hosts. Mighty, powerful, creator of the stars. God, as Jared comes to close us in a word of prayer, I just want to say thank you for loving a people. Loving a people who time and time again we make worship of you about something about us and God I pray that there'll always be people like Malachi to remind us it's about you and point us to you and show us your greatness and your glory it's in your heavenly name that we pray amen everyone thank you for uh, joining us today at McCoy um, we're going to be here for a few weeks as they uh, redo the air, con- air conditioning system at our, our usual place so don't forget to come back here again next week Um, Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this family of believers um, that are united because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that no matter where we gather, you are present, Lord. God, there's no better giver than you. 
you give us the very best that you have to give to the point that you gave your own son as a sacrifice so we could be in your presence, God. There's no one more worthy of what we have to give. And God, we are all guilty at some time in our lives of of giving lame offerings. We're guilty of making you smaller than who you really are. And God, we ask for your forgiveness. God, as we move forward, help us to give you only our very best and help us not to diminish your great name, that you are an almighty God. Wherever we go, whatever we do or whatever we say, help us proclaim your greatness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.